You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, if you've got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Every good story has a great ending, right? I don't know any good stories that don't have a don't have a great ending, and uh, that's where we're at. We're at the ending of the biblical story in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This, but this is not just the end of the biblical story. It is that. But it's also the culmination of our stories. And as we begin to read and look into Revelation 21 and 22, I think it's important for us to understand this, that this is not just the end of the biblical story, but it's actually the culmination of of our stories. Now, for the past nine weeks, we've been in this series called The Bible is One Book, and we've been looking at this chart, and you've all got it memorized by now for sure, right? Okay, keep working at it, keep working at it. Remember where we started about eight weeks ago? The pattern of the kingdom back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, it was just perfect, and it took one chapter to mess it all up, right? Chapter three in the book of Genesis, we see the perished kingdom, sin enters into the world, and the kingdom is all of a sudden, the pattern of kingdom is just kind of broken. There's a curse that's on the world. And then we leave that point and we go into the promised kingdom. That's all about Abraham in Genesis chapter, help me. Wow. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, where God makes this promise to Abraham and he creates this covenant with him, an unconditional covenant in Genesis chapter 15. He promises him some amazing things about the kingdom. And then we go into this large period of time called the partial kingdom where we begin to see that actually the kingdom's starting to come into being, right? It's starting to be established on the earth, except, except because of sin, the sinfulness of leaders and the sinfulness of the nation of Israel, the nation splits and, and the sin keeps happening and God says, I've had enough with that, I need to discipline my children, and so he sends them into exile. We have the first critical date for that is 722 B.C. When the Assyrians come on, onto the northern part of the kingdom, Israel, and they take them captive, destroy and take them captive back to, into Assyria. And then the second key date is 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes down into the kingdom in the south and takes them captive, people like Daniel and others go, get into, go into captivity in the exile. And we're kind of left with, wow, what happened to the promise? Right? Well, that, go, that goes into the next phase of the kingdom called the prophesied kingdom, where the prophetic hope is established. Actually, during the time of the exile, or just before the exile, these prophets are writing all of these things, and they're pushing forward towards the Messiah, towards Jesus Christ. And we leave that period and we get into the present kingdom when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, he is born, and his message is the kingdom of God is, help me, near. It's near. It's present is what he's saying. Why? Because the king is here. And if the king is here, that means there's a kingdom. And we call that a nowness to the kingdom. And so he announces the gospel, the good news of the kingdom being near it. For those that follow him, they can experience the kingdom now, but we also know there's a not yet aspect to that. It's something 
out in the future. There's a nowness to this, but and so Jesus dies, he's buried, he rises again, he's ascended into heaven, and we begin to live in this period of time known as the last days. The last days. Where the kingdom of God is proclaimed, and we proclaim the kingdom of God because God has placed us on this earth to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to invite other people into the kingdom, and then, and then all of this, all of this, all of this, all of it in anticipation of the perfected kingdom. Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 22. The entire story of the Bible is moving towards this. The entire story of your life is moving towards this. And I'm convinced of this. If you can get a conviction about the future, about your own future, it will bring clarity to your present. Now, we're in the book of Revelation and I find that people are either fascinated by, fascinated by the book of Revelation or they're confused by the book of Revelation or both, right? I'm kind of fascinated by it. I'm very confused by it. And of course, it's, it's because it's apocalyptic literature. It's full of visions and full of symbols and numbers and all these different things. There's dragons. There's beasts. There's even locusts with human faces. Anybody else think that's kind of weird? A locust with a human face? Yeah, so it's kind of, it's kind of, it's, a, it's apocalyptic literature, it's kind of strange, and so it's kind of difficult to understand. So I want to give you five things that I think that will help you, give you an overview for the book of Revelation before we begin to look at chapters 21 and 22, so you can see the progression of this book. So here, five things, five things you need to know about the book of Revelation. Here's the first thing. There is a last day to the last days. Jesus said we're living in the last days. The Apostle Paul said we're living in the last days. We've been living in the last days for like over 2,000 years. Which kind of begs the question, right? If we're in the last days, when's the last day? Well, the book of Revelation answers that question. It answers that question. It kind of lays out human history and it points you towards the, the last day, the culmination of the last days. So if you want to understand a little bit more about what that's like, you study the book of Revelation. It's fairly clear. That's the first thing you need to know about the book of Revelation. The second thing is this. God is in control. He's in control. Right? There's this... It's amazing what's happening is because the book of Revelation is full of events that are happening on the earth, but... As the curtain is kind of pulled back, you begin to realize as we see the things that are happening on the earth in the book of Revelation, there's actually things that are happening in heaven at the same time. In fact, the things that are happening in heaven are the reason why the things are happening on earth. And what we see in Revelation chapter 4 is a very clear picture of God sitting on his throne. Actually, the word there means mega throne, like a very large throne. He's sitting on his throne. What's the point behind that vision? God is in control. Okay, he's in control. Whatever's happening on this earth, I need, you need to understand, there's things that are happening in heaven, and God is in control of all of it. He's in control of all of it. Here's the second thing, the third thing that you need to know, all right? Jesus, Jesus is in charge. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this, there's this vision of 
God who's sitting on his throne, and in the strong right hand of God, there is this scroll. As it turns out, the scroll is all the details related to the last days. It's about the rolling out of of the final events. It's about how everything ends. And John says, isn't there anyone worthy who can take the scroll and open the seals? Isn't somebody going to do something about the scroll? And then all of a sudden he says, oh, there was a lion. A lion who turns out to be a crucified lamb, a sacrificed lamb. And Jesus Christ himself goes in this vision and takes the scroll of human history and takes it from the hand of God who is in control, sitting on his throne. He takes it out of his hand and he's the one who opens the seals. He's in charge. Jesus is in charge. God's in control. Jesus is in charge. Here, number four, Jesus wins. The book of Revelation is clearly about this story, that Jesus wins. Judgment and justice are coming. God's wrath on sin and those who oppose him will be poured out. Revelation chapter 19, this great earthly city, the city of Babylon, is destroyed. Jesus returns right after that with great justice. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan is finally bound and thrown into the lake of fire. All of humanity at the end of chapter 20 stands before God to to give an account. And the books are open, the books of our deeds and our works, and also the book called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's opened, and if your name isn't in there, you are also cast into the lake of fire. Judgment and justice are coming. They are coming. That's the message of the book of Revelation, and Jesus is the victor. He's the victor in the story. And here's the fifth thing. Because God's in control, because Jesus is in charge, because he wins, we win. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in Christ. If you're one who, as a one who is conquering and persevering to the very end, you will receive your reward. This is, and Revelation, and what is it? That's Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That's the reward. And here it is. This is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the perfected kingdom. That's what Paul meant when he said to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he knew when Christ returned, this is what was going to happen. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So here's a question I have for you this morning. What are you waiting for? What is it that you are waiting for? Now that's a question. Here's our first point. That's a question of anticipation. Of anticipation. Not Boy, I can hardly wait for the end of the sermon, or I can hardly wait to pick my kids up, or I can hardly wait to buy groceries, or waiting in line, or having to wait to make a left-hand turn. Do you ever find this always takes longer to make a left-hand turn? Always. I have to wait, have to wait. That's not what we mean when we ask the question, what are you waiting for? When we ask the question, what are we waiting for, we're saying, what are you longing for? What is your ultimate hope? What is your ultimate hope? What is, it, what is it that captures your imagination? What is it that keeps you going? What is it that, 
thing, what is the one thing that, that captures your life and your attention? What are you longing for? Here it is, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What is it that we long for? If you're in Christ, what is it that you long for? All things new. All things new. Eugene Peterson puts it, um, puts it this way. He says, the biblical story began quite logically with the beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically. Also with the beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is now restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of the book of Revelation. I love that. I love, I love that. Why is that so important? Why is this our longing, all things being made new? Because the world we live in is broken. That's why. Sin has left its imprint on all of creation, Genesis chapter 3. The world we live in is beautiful, but it is fundamentally broken. It's broken. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. From Genesis chapter 3 until now, all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then he goes on in the next verse, and he says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. You groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. For in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. True? Your body's breaking down. It is, yeah, amen, somebody said right at the front. That's right. Your body is, is, it's breaking down. It is breaking it down. And the new heavens, the new earth is a physical, spiritual, and emotional fix for what we know is broken. That's what we're waiting for. All things new. Oh man, I could hardly wait. And we long for this because we know we know our world's broken. I don't, do I have to convince you? Does anybody in this room need to be convinced that our world is broken? I mean, I'm, t- I'm tired of watching people celebrate or be apathetic towards the death of millions of aborted babies. Our world's broken. Totally broken. 
I don't want to read and listen to words of hatred and spin spewing from the mouths of leaders anymore. Broken. Visit a cancer clinic. Broken. The world's broken. Sin has left its mark. Please, God, tell me that this world and life is not all that there is. Verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. God is going to take hold of all things and he's going to make them new. He's going to turn death into life. Did you see the list in verse 4? Look at it again. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more earthquakes, nor more, no more tsunamis, no more struggle with personal identity, no more broken or strained relationships, no more illness, no more death, just life. Man. And that which was cursed is now going to become blessed. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. It says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the either, either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. The tree of life. Where do we see the tree of life? Genesis chapter 2. In the perfect pattern of the kingdom, in Genesis chapter 2, that's where we last saw the tree of life. God had to cut us off, humanity off from the tree of life because sin had entered into the world. I love this picture. The paradise that was lost in the garden is now found. Jesus, God, places the tree of life and eternity for us. It's a picture. It's a picture for us of healing, of blessing, of that, 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 that which was cursed is now blessed. I mean, what are you waiting for? What is it that you're longing for? What is your hope? What is it that drives you? Well, it's all things new, but it's also this. It's God's presence everywhere and all the time. Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in the book of Genesis, God relates to his people in a garden. Here in the book of Revelation, it's a holy city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, I, I'm, I'm like you, I, every once in a while I'll stop and I'll think about, I wonder what eternity is going to be like, right? When I was younger, I used to hope that I would have a house that kind of backed onto a golf course so I could just <laughs> jump over the fence and play as much golf as I wanted to all the time, always hitting a perfect shot, you know, perfect fade, perfect slice, whatever I wanted to do, it was just going to be great, you know? And eventually I matured from there and I started thinking about, well, maybe it'll be a cabin in the mountains, all right? <laughs> Don't laugh at me. I know half of you here are thinking the same thing as I am. Or, or maybe it would be like a, a house on the beach where you're overlooking the ocean, you know, 
Uh, we don't know exactly what eternity is going to look like, but I do know this. In the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it's all about a city. It's all about a city. It's a city that's in contrast to the earthly city, Babylon. You can see that in chapter 17, 18, and 19 of the, of the book of Revelation. Babylon, turns out, is the earthly city. It's the evil city. It's the city. You want to hear the title of the city? Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That's like, could you call anyone anything worse than that? That's what it represents. The earthly city is full of evil. It's full of a system that is abusing people, taking advantage of others, attacking the saints. It's doing all these different things. It's, it's a cruel, evil, bad system. And, and in contrast to that, in contrast to that, we have the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and in this city, God is with us. Look at verse, verse 3 of chapter 21. And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, God was, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. They got to actually walk with God and talk to God while he was in the garden. And then they, they lost that. They lost that. But now, the, here in the book of Revelation, that's being fulfilled again. Or we think about how the anticipation in the partial kingdom, where they were anticipating God being with them, and somehow they lost that. Now it is being fully realized here in chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, or horror, when they were in exile in Babylon or in Assyria, when they were anticipating the day that they could return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. The reason why they did that is because they were anticipating that God would be with them. And, and we see it here in Revelation 21 and 22, fully realized. This is, this is like this verse, or they, this verse, verse 3, is the full realization that every single human being on the face of the earth has anticipated for their whole lives. And if you're in Christ, you get to experience it. God with us, we with him, his people. What's that going to be like? I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but I'll tell you this. For me, it feels like home. Not our dysfunctional, broken things of home or the stress of home that we care. No, but the, the longing in our hearts of, of home. Being with my heavenly Father and other children of God. I, it's home. Does that sound good to you? Is that what you're waiting for? God with us. God with us. God is with us. God's glory is preeminent in the city. Look at verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, 
like a jasper, clear as crystal. John Piper defines glory this way, the glory of God this way. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. That's what he says. And the whole city, the whole city glows with the doxa, the glory of God. The gems, the jewels, the new creation, all of it shimmers because God's presence is fully manifested. Look at verse 15 of chapter 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The city is big. It's like large. 12,000 stadia. That's, around, that's somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles. Long, wide, high. That's like Toronto to Houston. That's a big city. It's big enough to have all of God's people there. That's the point. It's a big city. But not only is it a big city, it also turns out to be a very sacred city because it's a cube. It's 1,500 miles long. It's 1,500 miles wide. It's 1,500 miles high. What does that remind you of? What does a cube remind you of in Scripture? The Holy of Holies. In the temple, and the very holiest spot in the temple in the Old Testament was the Holy of Holies. And there was a, that was the, a cube. There was a cube, the Holy of Holies. And once a year, once a year, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and pay for the sacrifices of the sins of the people once a year. And it represented, the Holy of Holies represented the presence of the Lord. As it turns out, that cube, that holy cube that was in the Old Testament temple points forward to a day when we will be in a city that is a perfect cube full of God's presence. The most sacred of spaces in all of the entire universe is this city. Chapter 21, look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The city has no temple. I don't know if John was surprised at that, being Jewish, that he would kind of expect a temple to be in the city, the new Jerusalem. Would he not expect some kind of temple. As it turns out, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. In other words, God's presence, His glory is not confined to one particular spot in that city. The whole city is full of the glory of God, and it's the Lamb, Jesus Christ, as He has always done. He is the lamp of the glory of God. He is at the center of everything that is the source of the glory of God. God's presence everywhere and all the time. We know that the Bible teaches us as we are living in the nowness of the kingdom that we know God is omnipresent, right? Like he is 
everywhere, right? God is everywhere. We know that's true. And we also know that if you're in Christ, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you actually have the Spirit of God who is in you. So not only is he everywhere, he's also in you. That's what we experience now. And I'm telling you, man, that is like, I, I said, like that's amazing. To think that the God of this universe who is both is everywhere and yet he's also in us. The Spirit of God is in us. I mean, do we not have everything we need to live a godly life? That's what it's like now. Love it, but it's not yet. Even now, even knowing that God is everywhere and we know that God is in us, we still long, we long for a unique manifestation of God's presence in our lives, right? Kind of like an Acts 4 experience where they were, they were praying in Acts chapter 4 and then what happened? The whole room shook and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Or we read about these revivals that take place where people are dedicating themselves to prayer and all of a sudden the Spirit of God in His timing and His way just for a period of time, for a glimpse, of, maybe it's a day or a week or whatever, He just brings a spiritual renewal and revival to a group of people. We long for God to manifest himself in unique ways. That's how we live right now. But picture this. The manifest presence of the Lord all the time. Full glory of God on display every single moment for the rest of eternity. That's what you should be waiting for. That's what you should be longing for. Like It's like, you know, we long for the spiritual mountaintop experience with the Lord now, and I'm telling you, there's going to be a day, there's going to be a day when, when you will, <laughs> if you know Christ, you're going to enter into, the, into his presence and you will see his glory. You will be on top of the mountain all the time. All the time. No valleys. Just mountaintops. Can I get an amen? amen? And then this, all about the city. Look at chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. God's face will be seen. His face will be seen. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will be... There will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever, he says. God's face will be seen. This is what Moses wanted. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. I need to see your glory. And God responds in verse 20, and he says, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Moses wanted to see God's face, and God said, no. When you get to glory, you get to see God's face and live. How's that possible? How is it possible that you could see God's face and live? Here it is. You ready? You've been changed. You've been changed. You can see God's face because you've been changed. You see it? You see it in verse 4? His name will be on their foreheads. 
the name there means his character will be on their foreheads. It means, it means that you are fully, finally and fully, you are in the image and likeness of God. In contrast to those who are following the beast and Babylon who have a different mark on them, you have, you, you have, you're, you're like God. The righteousness of Christ is all over you. You are like God. That, isn't that not what the Apostle Paul meant when he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion? When? At the day of Jesus Christ. This is it. At the day of Jesus Christ, when Christ returns and when, when the new heavens and new earth are established, what? you're going to see God's face. You're going to see him face to face and live. Why? Because he's changed you. He's changed you. He's making all things, including you, including you. Is this what you're longing for? Is this your ultimate hope? Man, I, I'm like you. I have all these things that I want to experience in my life. I would, I'd love to see happen in my life, right? Like I, I you know, originally I had, I want to see my kids grow up, and I've, I've, I've achieved that, so tick, it's off my list, right? I would love to be present at the weddings of my grandchildren just to see, you know, I'm kind of curious. I want to know who they're going to marry, you know, how things are going to turn out, you know, kind of thing. I love, I love to grow old with, my, with Brenda. You know, some of you think I've already grown old. I kind of get it, but, you know, I'd even like to play Augusta if I could. And some of you don't know who Augusta is. I forgive you. That's okay. Some of those things are important. Some of those things are trivial. None of them are my longing. I'm, those, those aren't my hope. What's your list like? What's, what's your ultimate longing? What is it that, you, that you're ultimately placing your hope in? What is it? What is it? This is what it should be. All things new, God's presence everywhere all the time. Can hardly wait. Come on. I can hardly wait, Lord. Is that what you're waiting for? Is that what you're longing for? Is that what you're hoping for? Is that what captures your imagination? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Is that what gets you going when times are tough? Is that what keeps you faithful to the Lord? Is that what you're longing for? So what are you waiting for? And this question, what are you waiting for, is not just a question of anticipation. It's also here at second point is this. It's also a question of hesitation and invitation. You know, like when, when a parent says, like, what are you waiting for? Like, come on. Get going. Do something. Act on this. Like the girl who's wondering why this guy hasn't asked her out yet. And she's saying to herself, like, what's he waiting for? Like, I don't understand what he's waiting for. Or, or the parent who's seeing their child flounder and trying to make a decision. You want to say, what are you waiting for? Please do something. Act on this. So I'm asking you this question. What are you waiting for? What are you hesitating about? as it relates to the future. This is of such critical importance because not everyone will enter the perfected kingdom. Right in these two chapters, in chapter 21 and 22, tells us very clearly that not everyone is entering into the perfected kingdom. And this conviction of the future brings very urgent clarity into the present. 
So let's look at these two passages, two important passages that show us this, that perfected kingdom is, is not for everyone. Let's look at chapter 21, verses 6 through 8 first. Love hearing the Bible's turn. Thank you. And he said, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. A pretty clear in verse 7, isn't it? Who, who's going to inherit this? Who's going to get this heritage? The one who conquers. Then he says this in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He says it's for the courageous, not the cowardly. The people who overcome in this passage, those who are courageous, those who are conquerors, these are ones who persevere through persecution. They're staying faithful to Jesus because they have truly tasted the water of life. They know what it is to experience forgiveness of their sins through faith. And because of that, they have a conviction about their future that's giving them a very clear perspective on the present. They know that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard it gets, the perfected kingdom is worth waiting for. The struggle and suffering of today is light and momentary in contrast to the weight of glory. So they keep going. They keep staying faithful. These are the people that, that, that the, is writing about, that God is talking about, to the one who conquers. These are the people who are faithful. They've made a commitment to Christ, and they're going to complete that commitment to Jesus Christ because they know how much God has loved them through Jesus Christ. They're not going to give up. They're going to keep going. And in contrast to that, you have these people in verse 8 who are cowardly, faithless, detestable. ends the list with the word liars. These are people that when when the heat turns up, when persecution begins to press in on them, they actually turn their back on Jesus and run to Babylon. That's the whole story behind the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the church. Stay faithful, stay faithful. If you're not, repent, repent. Why? Because you could lose your testimony. Don't run away from me, run towards me. He's, he's warning, he's warning. He's saying, listen, like the, these people, like, they, maybe they've even professed faith, but they're actually living a dual life. They've got one foot in Babylon and they have another foot trying to get into the eternal city and it doesn't work like that. They probably profess their faith, but it really turns out that actually, actually, they're just cowards and they've actually lied. They've lied to themselves. They've lied to God. And the result of that is lake of fire. What are you waiting for? Don't hesitate. Is that you? Is that you? Are you courageous or a coward? Are you more about the earthly Babylon or are you more about the eternal city? Are you trying to keep a foot in both cities, both kingdoms? Are you trying to live a dual life? Is that you? Is your faith real? 
That's a pretty important passage. Here's another one. Look at chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and adulterers and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What's the perfect, who's the perfected kingdom for? It's for those who have, have washed white robes, not filthy robes. All of us start with filthy robes. It's a picture of our lives. All of us start with filthy robes. Sin has impacted everything. It's impacted the very nature of mankind ourselves. Sin has impacted us, and it's separated us from God. The question is not whether you have filthy robes. The question is whether you have washed your robes. Have you washed your robes? And it turns out there's only one person who can clean your robes. You see this here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. Talking about those in the great tribulation, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have what? They have washed their robes and made them white in the what? In the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way that your filthy life full of sin can be transformed into the righteousness of Christ. So that when God sees you, all he sees is white robes. I love that. It's like, it's, like, it's like Jesus' righteousness gets placed on us because we've expressed faith in him. We've expressed faith in him. His payment for our sins. That's what leads to filthy robes turning into washed white robes of righteousness. And then we get to enter into eternity with God. Experience the tree of life and walk through the gates of the city, without this, you are outside. Away from God, not experiencing the glory of the Lord. And some of you here this morning are hesitating. You have to place your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Experience forgiveness from your sins. And enjoy a relationship with God and his Son and his Spirit now and forever. Don't hesitate. What are you waiting for? No, don't hesitate. Do what it says in verse 17 of chapter 22. Look at it. The Spirit and the bride say... Come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come, come to Jesus. Do it now, right now. Repent of your sin. Ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Place your faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. What are you waiting for? This is the end of the biblical story. But it's the culmination point of our lives, too. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So what are you waiting for? What are you longing for? What are you hoping for? Don't hesitate. I love 
how Billy Graham puts it so well. He was so good at taking complex things and just kind of simplifying them for people like me that need things to be simplified. I, he said this, I, I've read the last page of the Bible, and he said, and it's all going to turn out all right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, why didn't you just say that? And we could have gone home kind of thing, right? It's true. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray the words of the closing verses of the book of Revelation, where Jesus himself said, Surely I am coming soon. And then the people responded, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Oh, man. What a day that's going to be. Come, Lord Jesus. Come.